welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation bi- biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, a co-founder of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to be talking to Miranda Turan from Pacific Assistance Dog Society about training assistance dogs and specifically training their handlers so that dogs can be kind of effectively handed off after training. So welcome to the podcast, Miranda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yes, this is going to be a lot of fun. So for those of you who don't know Miranda, which we understand if you don't, she's not really in the conservation dog world yet. Um, We'll see if we can get her. Um, She is an advanced dog trainer and assessment coordinator for Pacific Assistance Dog Society, which is a nonprofit that places highly skilled service dogs with people who live with disabilities other than blindness. Motivated by her passion for partnering people with life-changing service dogs, Miranda takes pride in training and placing highly skilled, happy, and reliable working dogs. Miranda has trained more than 40 dogs towards successful working careers, and she uses her teaching degree to help her organize and run ongoing client education and was a presenter at the most recent Assistance Dogs International Conference. In addition to working with her dogs professionally, she also spends the rest of her free time competing in IGP with her crew of Belgian Malinois. So this is going to be a very exciting interview. Super excited to get into it. First, though, we are going to go through our science highlight. So this week, we visited the article Canine Olfaction, Scent, Sign, and Situation, which was written by Simone Gadbois and Catherine Reeve, came out in 2014 in Domestic Dog Cognition and Behavior. So this is an absolutely fascinating article that I've probably read four or five times over the course of the last four years. Um, And it's pretty dense stuff. It goes over the physiological and neurological underpinnings of odor processing. Um, Their goal was to describe briefly three main components of the olfactory system that are involved in more cognitive processing of olfactory information, as well as being involved in the motivational mechanisms underlying olfaction. End quote. This paper also goes over the role of dopamine in motivation and the what, where, and how much of searching. Next, this book chapter, um, not an article, <laughs> goes into the psychophysics, olfactory learning, and cognition, and gives a lovely view of errorless discrimination learning, lineups, and issues with memory load for sensory processing, as well as ethological processes for sniffer dog work. Again, this is a really dense but fascinating, informative book chapter. More so than a study, I think this is one of those papers that if you read it and reread it and strive to understand it, it can be a pretty cool paradigm shift for kind of how we understand detection dogs. So we'll put the link up in the show notes and you can find that over at canineconservationist.org when you're ready to read it. So Miranda, let's um, let's get into it. Do you have anything to say about the concept of that paper first before we get um, into it? Having not personally read that paper, I can't speak to the paper itself, but I will mm-hmm. plug another podcast that actually has Simone Gadbois on it. Um, that mm-hmm. was really good. So um, Ivan Balabanov has his own podcast and had actually a couple hour interview with Simone regarding um, canine olfaction, dopamine usage, and that type of thing. So it was a great podcast and it's a little bit easier to maybe it's a little bit it's quite accessible which is nice if you don't have necessarily a few hours or days to reprocess book chapters um he's an absolutely fascinating person a really brilliant scientist and it, it was a 
great listen. So I would highly recommend Ooh. because you know, I think they what do is, touch on a lot of that. That's great. What is, I didn't know Ivan Balvinov. I don't think I know his podcast. What's it called? So he, <laughs> he's a bit of a controversial figure, but he okay. is in, um, not, you know, he's, he's an IGP trainer and he's a okay. world level competitor. Um, and he, certainly has some really great people that he interviews on his training without conflict podcast. So training it's absolutely conflict. worth okay. listening to uh, in some regards because the people that he's interviewing are absolutely fascinating. And so Mom Gadbois is one of those ones and they do touch on canine olfaction and uh, working dogs. So I think it's a really great relevant yeah. connection that uh, is easy to do while you're in the car. <laughs> Yes, perfect. If you're like um, me and you're busy and you get most of your learning auditory. <laughs> same. Yeah, no, and we we love Dr. Gadbaugh. We've had him on the show here at least twice. Um, and I'm in the process of wrangling him and pinning him down for a third one. Um, yes. <laughs> so, He's Canadian. Uh, yeah, and, we love him. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah, I know. God, I know. We, I actually, um, this is a bit of an aside, but I have been trying on and off for like five years to try to figure out how to be a PhD student under him. And the mm. US Canadian grad school funding nightmare has just not been doing me any favors in that endeavor. But um, well, that yeah. would be really an exceptional opportunity if you can make oh, that my work. Goodness, I can't imagine. Um, I, I shouldn't say this out loud because I'm probably going to end up getting my PhD under someone else, but I can't imagine someone I'd rather study under. <laughs> yes, yes, I could. Um, I would absolutely have a hard time not fangirling every time I spoke mm -hmm. with him. <laughs> it might be hard to have him give feedback on my papers. Uh, <laughs> You know, um, you would work, you would be very motivated and work your absolute uh -huh. hardest. So I think that would be, yes. you know, a great opportunity for you to be your best self. <laughs> yes. But anyway, enough about Dr. Gadbois. Let's get Sorry. into you and your work. No, it's okay. First things first, I guess, let's get some definitions out of the way. What do you call, do you call them a service dog handler? And then would the appropriate word be like a novice or first time? How do you kind of describe the person who's getting their very first service dog. So inside of our organization, we often refer to the people who are partnered with our dogs as clients. Uh, mm -hmm. Part of that is that we do want to have a service first mentality towards supporting these clients. These are the people that we are uh, working with and, and the, they're the underpinning of why we do what mm -hmm. we do. Uh, in general, we refer to the dog and client together as a partner because we are focused on supporting relationship first training and relational based um, interactions with their dogs because they really truly are partners, not just in the skills that they do, but in how they support their clients. So it's, it's a relationship for us and we tend to run that yeah. terminology around it. Yeah, I, I like that. We we use the the term teams a lot, you know, yes, dog handler yes. teams. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of in the conservation dog world. There's a lot of terms that we've been trying to trying on for size as an industry, separate from the word handler or handler trainer. Um, you know, it is, it's, so there's a lot of different ways to put it. And I think that makes yes. sense. Anyway, so, and, and actually, this is a good time for me to take a step back and say, you know, the reason I wanted to do this episode with you is because there's a bit of a perception by some in the conservation dog industry that you can't train a dog 
to a really high level for a very specific job and then hand it off to someone else and have that dog succeed in that job in the long run. And that mm. you can have the best trained dog in the world, but you hand them off to some newbie and they're going to ruin the dog and it's a waste of everyone's time and money and it's a money grab to go ahead and do this. I, I, I'm, I might be dramatizing a little bit, but actually not by much. Um, yeah. okay. And there are some people who, who are very well respected in the industry who do do this. But then there are other people kind of on the other side who think it's in some cases, flat out impossible or irresponsible to do. So when I was thinking about, you know, personally, I love the idea of raising a dog, training them to do this job, helping meet a client's needs, partner them with the right person and get that dog out into the job by, where someone could maintain the, the work that that dog do, does. And maybe they need some brush up work intermittently. But how do we make that succeed? And when I was thinking about this episode, um, again, partially selfishly, because this is something I would love to do okay let's let's talk to the service dog industry because this is what you guys do um and i i can't there are obviously massive differences between what you're asking your dogs to do and what i'm asking my dogs to do but i don't think that either job is inherently more difficult than the other and i don't necessarily see why you could train a dog to do something in an assistance dog role and have that dog succeed in the long run. And you couldn't do that in the conservation dog world. So that's where this episode is kind of coming from. Yeah. And I really like that you framed that question because I do see that there are quite interesting parallels between these Mm -hmm. two working dog roles. And I think the biggest one that might be most important for the listeners um, and this is just me projecting, so I can I can only speak for mm-hmm. what our priorities are. Is that reliability is as an absolute must? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So we require reliability because in our industry, reliability can mean the difference between life and death. If you yeah, have, if I've trained a hearing dog candidate, if I've trained a hearing dog and that dog fails to do their job and fails to alert to something like a smoke detector a baby crying, a tornado warning, anything that could be an Mm -hmm. emergency in that person's environment and that dog fails to do that, that is literally life and death for that client. So reliability is an absolute must. And my impression from the conservation industry and the working dog conservation industry is that reliability is a priority for you folks too. Yeah. And when I hear... hmm, Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I just wanted to reflect that. Like when I hear someone saying like, you you shouldn't do that or the dog won't be, the team won't be successful or reliable. It makes me think a little bit about gatekeeping and what Mm -hmm. we're providing access to right um and for me i come from a perspective where it's entirely unfair to gatekeep access to a whole range of people who might not have had the privilege um, of acquiring a dog from or had acquiring dog experience so quite a few of our clients depending on what their disability is can be first-time dog handlers and Mm -hmm. i it I would just want to invite people to ask themselves, like, what are their goals for the industry? 
And then how would they want to reflect on those goals and see that their practices match the goals? Because it, I, I can't speak for what their challenges are, but I mean, to me, it's a lot of what we have is like the models that we use or to think about our world connect the beliefs about our disciplines mm-hmm. um, and our perceptions about uh, what our expectations are or what the expectations of the field are or what makes somebody a good dog trainer or a good handler. Some yeah. of the best dog trainers I know are people who are living with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think yeah. there's a lot really bound up in our thinking about dog training and it's connected to our experiences, right? Our training philosophies, um, yeah. like our messages that we send to other people, uh, in I our think, field. No, right? I so think there's a lot to unpack. <laughs> as there far is. As that. And I'm so glad though, that you brought up this idea of, gatekeeping and inclusion we've got another episode that we're recording here in a couple weeks so it'll come out probably a month after this one with a diversity educator about you know expertise and diversity and equity and inclusion and in this in this field and i think so my my understanding of where that concern comes from is it it's from a very understandable root of this is a new field or it's not even that new of a field but it's not that well known it doesn't have a widespread understanding and acceptance in the scientific community. And therefore, one of the biggest fears that a lot of experts have would be the market, quote unquote, being flooded by poorly trained, undertrained, ineffective dogs that therefore, you know, me and my dogs, we couldn't do this at this really high level. There's all these amazing studies coming out there showing that, you know, dogs can do this at 97% specificity. They can, you know, accuracy, all of these numbers are like off the charts. They're amazing. But that's with expert dogs and expert handlers. And we don't really know. I assume that the ceiling or, you know, that's kind of, we can assume the ceiling because you can't really get much better than 99, 97% um, with most of these measures. But then the floor is really, really low as well. Um, You could conceivably have dogs that not only never find a single target, maybe find you a couple things that are absolutely not what you were looking for, but they could trace wildlife, they could kill wildlife. They, you know, like the floor of like what the worst case scenario of a badly trained conservation dog could do and could therefore kind of do to the field is I think a very important thing to consider. My my hypothesis <laughs> is that part of this comes around in this particular field because many, particularly of many of the big names in our field currently in the conservation dog field, um, many of them have a conservation background, maybe a biosensing background, but most of them are kind of ecologists or conservationists. And I'm talking particularly about a lot of our big names who have been around for 10, 20 more years, but they're not dog trainers. And I think therefore there can be times where there is a misunderstanding in this field of how dogs become successful, how dogs learn to do this. And if you don't have a lot of really solid dog behavior training, coaching expertise to build on top of that ecology conservation background, I could see how it may be so difficult to actually train a dog and hand that dog off to another handler that it may be 
functionally impossible. Does that make sense? And I don't, I don't mean that in any way to disparage these people. It's just, it's a different skill set um, from the idea of training a dog well enough and then coaching a human well enough that they can ride off into the sunset successfully together. It is, and it makes absolute sense. So I, we want to make sure that we're not uh, dismissing what mm-hmm. are legitimate concerns. And I think there 100%. are parallels. There are parallels uh, even inside the service dog industry where mm-hmm. we talk about owner trained service dogs. So mm-hmm. for us, what we think about as dogs as a privilege and focus a large amount of energy and resources on educating about public access and appropriate service dog etiquette in order for us to maintain the privilege of being able to have dogs in a working role in public where they're generally not accustomed. The, I can see the parallel where there can be a feeling even inside our industry is who is helping these owner trained service dogs? Who is making sure that that dog is not biting people, that Uh that dog is safe that dog mm-hmm. that that dog is uh, not going to interfere with other people's experiences or other service dog teams and so for us in our industry what we've kind of done is you know we have amazing organizing bodies like assistance dogs international that create a standard they create a standard for the organizations and how we serve our clients and how we make sure that we are transparent, responsible, and putting out a professional product. Um, But we Uh also have standards of a public access test. And so I think there's probably a lot of unwritten rules um, that are maybe expectations that get in the way of either opening up these opportunities to other people. So to me, what is part of the challenge is that you're it's a young it's a nascent uh-huh. industry and that you have not yet had uh or maybe you have but perhaps not widely adopted as a organizing body that uh-huh. does assess and set standards of expectations of knowledge so theory and training and uh and f- efficacy so that can be very challenging for those for for you in the industry because you're trailblazing and, and it's something that 30 years ago, I feel like assistance dogs international was, was doing as well. And so as the industry grows, I suspect what you might find is that there will be more coming together in the community of practice to set a gold standard for what conservation detection looks like. And that's probably the best solution to, uh, to managing all of the anxiety that goes around Mm who is appropriate. How do we know what they do? Um, How do we know that they're supporting people that they're, that they're doing the best that they can do ethically and um, effectively. So inside inside of that conservation mindset, we know, you know, if, if Kayla has a degree from a university, that degree says that you've met a minimum standard. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I mean, it's ha- that, if, that old you, joke of you know, what do you call the doctor who graduated bottom of their class? Doctor, a doctor. <laughs> it's uh-huh. true. But, but they graduated. <laughs> they did. They did, and they did. You know, that's a lot more than your uncle on Facebook. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe, unless your uncle on Facebook is also a doctor. Um, yeah. No, I think that's a that's a really good point. You know the. The best that I can think of is we do, in our field is we do have um, there's a lovely paper written by Dr. Karen DiMatteo called Fundamentals for Success for Conservation Dogs and it kind of talks about the basics of dog selection, handler selection, study design, setup, etc. That's a really lovely paper, but it's just kind of a you know it's a document. Um, it doesn't you know yeah it, it, it's got limitations. It's just it's just a paper. Um, and then I know, like, there's the Australasian Conservation Dog confer- uh, Conference. Well, no, the conference is actually starting today, but there's the, God, what the network, the Australasian Conservation Dog Network. And I think they have quite a few good kind of joint standards of practice and those sorts of things. Um, and my understanding is we could join, even though we're not Australasian, but, you know, it's it's relatively limited in the field right now. There's not... Um, there's not a variety in like you know my my best example in comparison would be in the cons- in the just plain old dog training world you know you can join the pet professional guild you can join the international association of animal behavior consultants you can join the association of professional dog trainers you could join the certification council for professional dog trainers and they all have pretty good standards of practice um they all vary a little bit in what they're catering to you know if you want to train sport dogs um, actually, uh, sport dogs, I don't know which certification you would necessarily want to go towards. I would probably go with like the Karen Pryor clicker training actually, versus if you want to work with dogs with aggression, then the IABC is probably where you're going to be going and you can kind of find your fit and find your tribe within those, those organizations. Um, and uh, actually even a lot of those organizations do have joint standards of practice. So <laughs> you can't get away from expertise just by joining one instead of the other. Um, and I, I think... I hope that that's a direction that we can go. And again, really thinking of it through the lens of elevating everyone together and offering education and offering security, not using that as a, you know, as a pike to to reinforce any sort of gatekeeping, you know, build, build bridges, not moats. (laughs) That's the hope anyway. And certainly sometimes a moat is necessary. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's we're not going to we're not going to say a moat doesn't have its time and place. Uh totally. but I yeah. see for myself I see education as an opportunity for those who are hiring conservationists. So that's where these networking organizations um, that have a, they do have a training standard. Now it's time to think about maybe in the industry, how do we educate those who are paying the people who are doing the conservation work? Uh, yes. Right. So whether that's working through lobbying through government, because a lot of this is done th- probably through government programs, at least in Canada, it's, there's a lot of mm-hmm. uh, generally government funding of NGOs that work towards managing our ecology around here. Uh, So Mm -hmm. that might be something to look into in order to manage the standards that are set. But also, I think to get back to your original question, it's about selecting, right? It's about selecting those people who 
are 100% invested in the goal that you have. And so for us mm-hmm. in the service dog industry, that goal is happy, reliable, and professional working dogs, right? Mm-hmm. That are able to support people and foster independence. And if they have that mindset that they do, that they buy in and they buy into what we are doing, then we can support and coach almost anybody through almost any training challenge because we're really about setting and fostering uh, a community of practice that makes that makes those things available to people. So yeah, I think that that's kind of a mentality that I would personally prefer to focus in is just thinking about like the teams that I train um, and that they are able to demonstrate professionalism and, and reliability and, and a positive training ethic. That's mm-hmm. where our priority is. And there's quite a bit of research in education, um, in the education field that drives that correlation between self-efficacy or internal motivation and things like grades or outcomes in courses. So if you're blessed like me, I come from a field that's very rich with people who are intrinsically motivated to work hard, to develop and maintain the best skill levels and relationship with their working dogs possible. And then I, we, I think we do a good job of orienting our client selection and teaching approach to enhance that self-efficacy And I can only speak from personal experience from even from my sport work um, that if you want to have an IGP title, if you want Mm -hmm. to to work in a three-phase sport, if you want to do any sort of scent detection, it's a miles game. It's like Mm -hmm. I do tracking. That is absolutely like you have to really be self-motivated to do that. It is not (laughs) a quarter of what you folks do. But, you know, if it's in Canada, uh, we're up at dawn and I'm out on a tracking field at seven in the morning every morning if I'm prepping for competition. Right. And so if you don't have self-efficacy, you're probably not making it. I suspect that they the wheat sorts from the chaff (laughs) a little bit in that those who really want it, who are really motivated by it, they are absolutely Mm -hmm. going to get it. And those who are less motivated will start to sift out towards the bottom because, you know, that motivation pulls is the difference between effectiveness uh, and or winning or Mm -hmm. getting a contract and not getting a contract. So I would be less concerned about how reliable is the dog and more concerned about maybe how, uh, how motivated is the handler? Because I think our dogs can only be as good as our training. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And I think that is, I think that almost brings us full circle to, you know, that is a legitimate concern in that you could have a really amazing dog and if you train them really well and then you hand them off to just kind of whoever wants to pay you know say 10 grand for a fully trained dog which might be kind of cheap um you know they could have this dog where looks amazing at the beginning and then it could fall apart um so i think you know like all of it is true at once. There are these really legitimate concerns about making sure that we can maintain this. But I think you're right. You know, you can only 
you can't actually get that far in fields like this. Like, A, it doesn't pay that well. B, it's not as fun as it looks on Instagram. <laughs> C, it's really, really, really hard work. So I think there is a little bit of this like boogeyman effect of the idea that if we like let out our secrets, everyone's going to go out there and become a conservation dog handler and be able to fool all of these government um, contractors and whatever into hiring all of these people and dogs who don't know what they're doing. And I just don't see the evidence for that um, so far in a lot of it's, places. <laughs> it, seems, it seems, it does seem like it would be, I mean, you'd have to, it's like, you'd have to put a lot of work into cheating. <laughs> yeah. So most people who I think like you would, if I was preparing a dog for conservation work um, and preparing, perhaps I would rather see that dog go to um, a first time dog handler who is extremely motivated and extremely invested in what they were doing than an experienced dog trainer or handler whose cup of resources and knowledge is already full, who's uh -huh. perhaps not necessarily um, ready to take on the effort that it takes to be able to be effective at your job, or in my experience, the effort that it takes to be effective as a service dog trainer. Like I said, I'm very privileged. We have amazing uh -huh. clients who are talented dog trainers, who are um, exceptional in many ways and who see the amount of work that it takes to maintain their dogs. Uh, just because we give them a trained dog doesn't mean that they're not still training because every time they pick up a leash, they're training a dog. And so for us, we focus a lot of our energy on making sure it's a good match and then making sure that the dog has the appropriate skill set that we can use to transfer over to that person, which is detailed, but perhaps a little bit too detailed mm -hmm. for our conversation today. Um, and then really working on coaching and, and yeah. educating people uh, so that they can maintain those skills. Because at the end of the day, I'm not, it's very hard to separate sometimes your pride of what that dog looked like with you mm. versus what that dog looks like for somebody else um, sometimes. And it, but it's not for me to lay judgment or to say what is good enough for that person, right? And, right. and, and if you mm -hmm. want to say what's good enough as an industry, then that needs to be an industry standard that has, like yeah. I said, a, 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 a minimum bar of entrance that uh, that has, for us, we have yearly recertifications for our uh, client teams that they mm -hmm. are able to demonstrate that they are able to pass a public access test yearly. Um, we have a strong system of client education and support. Mm -hmm. And if I see a team that is not thriving, then I'm going to want to approach that from a place of needing more support, not not that person's not doing good enough. Because if I yeah. selected them correctly, they are doing their best. 
that's 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 the goal at the end of the day right it's not yeah. it's it's about wanting to see that this person can be their best selves or they can be an amazing dog trainer if they have the right mindset and i just need to as an educator pull them along with my enthusiasm about what an amazing service dog can do, can look like, can feel like yeah. and can provide for them. So uh-huh. I think, I think if you take it from an educator's approach rather than from a um, kind of an authoritarian or a, uh, an approach mm-hmm. of like, you, you know, this is mine, <laughs> the resource guarding the conservation industry. Uh-huh. <laughs> Right. Because uh, even in, even for us, like there are many really great owner trained service dog teams. And I can't as a yeah. person who works for an ADI school say, hey, you're not doing it good enough. This is my uh-huh. gold standard. Well, and because I can as imagine long as that dog is effective, for, it's good. For you, too, there's, I mean, public access questions aside, if someone says that their service dog is helping them, I would be kind of inclined to believe them. If they say, hey, the way he opens this door works for me, <laughs> even if you're like, wow, that is absolutely not the clean, beautiful train behavior that we have <laughs> that we've worked on. Um, you know, who are we to say the fact that your dog, I, I can't even think of like a good example, but just does something uh, ridiculous. Retrieving, retrieving. Yeah. pick retrieving, because retrieving uh-huh. is actually a very complicated skill yes. that to have a retrieve to the standard that uh, I train a retrieve um, is takes somebody who's effectively a dog trainer. It takes, you know, like uh-huh. it's, it, it takes that level of interesting control freak to have that a perfect <laughs> retrieve where the dog goes up us? directly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, dog trainers, we're all control freaks. Yeah. Let's, yeah, yeah, let's yeah, just, yeah. let's yeah, just yeah. air the elephant in the room. You just came back from Kenya. Like this is like, yeah, we are we all it. good dog trainers are all kind of a little bit neurotic. That's why we like our mm-hmm. herding breeds. They're neurotic. With yeah. us. Yep, yep, yep. But to have a perfect, so I'll see stuff that I've trained a dog. I've placed it with a client and you'll, you know, you'll see stuff and it will have varying levels of having maintained that picture that I built. Mm-hmm. you know what is the client happy is yeah. the dog doing the work is it reliable on cues every you know like and and is the dog happy and as yeah. long as those things as long as like i said they're professional um the dogs are uh, motivated and healthy and the clients are happy what right. like and i think in the conservation dog world yeah like our our analogy would be you know, I think our public access analogy is probably wildlife interactions. It's safety for wildlife. That's something that I think, broadly speaking, is pretty non-negotiable. Um, you know, we can we can quibble on the details, but everyone can pretty much agree that yeah, that's really really important. Um, uh, well, it'll be interesting to see if I get any, uh, if there's any reason that I'm wrong on that. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, who knows? Um, but then, as far as like your dog's specificity, it's a pretty big one where I can see reasonable people disagreeing. Um, so, say you've got a dog trained to find, well, let's just pick something random: uh, white-tailed deer scat. I don't know why you would do that because there's white-tailed deer poop everywhere, but let's pick that one because I don't know. I don't think anyone's going to think I'm talking about them because I don't think anyone's doing it. <laughs> and if they, if, if they are, if I they don't are. know about them. So it's legitimately not, not talking about it. <laughs> exactly. 
And then, you know, over time, all of a sudden your dog is also finding mule deer scat and elk scat and moose scat. And for whatever reason, you haven't remedied that. Maybe because you don't know how, maybe you don't care. But if you get to the point where as a handler, you're like, okay, great. Now we're doing an ungulate study. We're not just studying deer. We're going to look at all, we're not just looking at white-tailed deer. We're looking at all the deer in our area. I could, as a trainer, say, oh my gosh, your dog like started generalizing to all these other species. That's not really what we wanted the dog to do. But if that works for you and either because you've shifted your study goals and you're like, great, now we're just studying all the ungulates in this area, or you're just like, you know, yeah, we pay extra on genetics lab fees um, because we collect some off-target samples. And if that's fine for someone, that is not the sort of thing that I think I need to get my panties in a bunch over. Um, you know, unless then they're going out elsewhere and saying, yeah, you know, th th these dogs will train themselves to find other stuff and they won't really stay on target. And, you know, then they're they're harming the industry in some other way. But that's that's kind of a side. So I think I do, I apologize. We went on like, I asked one question. We went on a crazy tangent. <laughs> I want to bring it back and ask you like, okay, you know, we're here to talk about the idea of kind of both preparing the dog and the, and the client for to become a partnership and to succeed together. Um, maybe let's start with the human side of things. If someone reaches out to you to work with your organization, you know, what are some of the things that you're going to explore with them to see if even partnering with a service dog makes the most sense for them? Because I can imagine with certain disability types or maybe certain lifestyles, there may be a better tool or you know, even medical device for their needs than a dog or maybe for whatever reason the dog would be a good fit for their needs but their lifestyle doesn't support it or their personality how do you think about that and how do you kind of screen that so i will say that um i do think of myself in the business of convincing people not to get service dogs uh -huh. <laughs> uh, because really it is uh it is a large commitment and it can feel like a lot of work. So when we're thinking about looking for partners for our dogs for, to create new service dog teams, we're really looking to find um, applicants that have a great mindset that are mm -hmm. those people who are, I mean, we come loaded with intrinsic motivation in the industry most of the clients there these are life-changing dogs because the dogs are doing everything from pulling wheelchairs to retrieving dropped objects to signaling for anxiety with post-traumatic stress disorder all sorts uh -huh. of types of work that is really fostering a sense of independence and also a relationship that is at its foundation non-judgmental it's yeah. difficult to be a person living with a disability on a good day um and so to be able to have that relationship with an animal that is absolutely non-judgmental and that you see asking for something brings the dog joy as opposed <laughs> to feeling like a burden is really incredible so we're loaded with intrinsic motivation in general but I think that's one of those qualities that is most important when we're thinking about going through our applications for people mm -hmm. who are looking for service dogs. Um, in, it's an unfortunate reality that we have a 
application list that is a mile long and 10 miles deep. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. it's uh, really difficult in some scenarios to do owner trained service dogs. And so there is a huge demand for, for the dogs that we give to clients. And so while we do our best, we are non-discriminatory. We are proud members of Assistance Dogs International. And so we are focused on providing dogs for, for all types of people, um, regardless of physical ability. But we definitely want to, f- when we're going through those applications, um, we have people express an we call it an expression of interest. So they let us know, hey, we're interested in having a service dog. And then if they fit the profile of um, the types of dogs that we serve people with, Mm -hmm. then we allow them to uh, fill out an application, which gives us a general description of who they are. And then based on that, uh, if we tend to work together to place uh, best fit, uh, mm-hmm. and first and then longest on the list second. So it's kind of a long process, but if yeah. they fit inside, if they tell us, you know, if we're like, okay, we're looking for say a wheelchair pulling dog, we have a wheelchair pulling dog coming up. Um, we're going to need a client for them. We start looking at people who fit that type of profile and then going through that profile and seeing, okay, what does, does the dog fit this person's lifestyle based on what they've told us? And does the dog um, fit their skill set requirements? And if mm-hmm. yes, then we start looking through those applications and saying, okay, we have three or four people. Well, let's interview these folks to see, um, to get a feel for their personality and to see where they at, uh, are at as far as their readiness for a service dog. A lot of times you might have health issues or um, lifestyle concerns or, you know, just life changes that maybe says right now is not the time to um, have a service dog come into your life. Um, And then once they have, if they meet all those criteria, we were looking for uh, a best fit as far as personality type. And like Mm -hmm. I said, for me, that's a lot about mindset is, is this person, a good fit for the style of dog that we're giving them, um, the personality of the dog that we're giving them, and then for the other requirements of uh, willingness to work, to maintain a working dog, as wonderful mm-hmm. as our dogs are, they we know things, uh, behavior isn't static. So they have to be a bit of a dog trainer because there's a standard of um, public etiquette that is followed up on by the organization. So we're looking for people who have the mindset that they are flexible in their approach, that they are coachable, and that they are happy and willing to work towards meeting our standard of of, um, deployment for our service dog Mm -hmm. teams. 
Patreon Book Club is in full swing. We just finished up Detector Dogs and Scent Movement by Tom Osterkamp and are about to start Canine Ergonomics, The Science of Working Dogs. To join our book club for three bucks a month, head on over to patreon.com slash canine conservationists. We also offer monthly group coaching sessions for aspiring handlers, puppy raisers, and pros, as well as a monthly rotation of free webinars, workshops, and roundtables with experts. Um, Again, three bucks a month, up to 25 bucks a month, kind of depending on what level level of support you want to um, give and receive, check that out at patreon.com slash canine conservationists. I hope to see you join us there soon. As you're training with dogs, what are you thinking about as far as ensuring that the dogs are going to be ready and able to work with someone new? Is it ever... Is it ever the dog that has the problem where the dog works well for you and then falls apart with the handler, even though there's nothing obviously kind of funky with their handling? Um, Yeah, let's talk about the dogs. Yes. Okay. Now we get to geek out about dog training. I know. So, (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) So absolutely. Like the first thing, it comes down to selection of the dogs. So Mm -hmm. we're blessed. We have a, an amazing breeding program in cooperation with um, like the assistance dogs breeding cooperative. So we are right from the whelping pen, right from the parents We're we're breeding working dogs. So most, mm-hmm. we're very lucky, but that is not necessarily a home run. We're also sticking sure. out dogs who perhaps don't want to work. And, and I think industry wide, about 50% of the dogs going to client is kind of a, standards for our Mm -hmm. puppy programs into placement uh so but we're selecting the dogs and we're selecting the dogs who for me if i'm going to just focus on like service skills so our ptsd service dogs our mobility service dogs and our hearing dogs uh, those dogs are going to be motivated either because they are highly biddable um, mm-hmm. So they want to do the work for the for people in general, or they're highly task oriented. And in an ideal world, they're both of those things. Sure. Now okay. that's ideal. And then as I'm going through training dogs, I'm really thinking about creating um, foundation skills that are going to involve a uh, high level of fluency in how mm-hmm. to learn, right? So that they're learning how to learn. Um, so we do a lot of shaping, uh, that clicker is always the same, no matter who's wielding it. Uh, Mm -hmm. we're going to do things like, for me, I focus on beginning with failure in mind so that if my dog is struggling, I'm going to set up my, I'm going to train with already the ability to know if this fall apart, falls apart. A retrieve falls apart, a kickback stand falls apart, a, you know, button falls apart, that I have a hierarchy of relevance in place that I now go instead of go like, now what? I -hmm. go, then what? First. So I'm, we're going to have a system of hierarchy of relevance. So if we think about for our dogs, inputs and relevance look like tactile is probably the most relevant then a visual cue is the next most relevant cue and then a verbal cue all of our dogs are trained to task on 
verbal cues only. So we don't use any hand mm-hmm. gestures or prompts because those things might not necessarily be able to be translated to a person who doesn't have arms, mm-hmm. who has spasms, um, mm-hmm. if they have spastic CP. Motor skills. Or, yeah. Absolutely. So different yeah. levels of functionality. Um, so a verbal cue. And so I'm going to train to fluency, but I'm also going to know if I, if my dog, here's an easy one. I say stand and my dog doesn't stand. I can always transition to the client. Okay. So they didn't stand. What you can do is you can prompt them to stand by using the collar with gentle pressure, pull backwards towards their tail and the dog. That's a prompt that will allow the dog to, Oh, this is what you meant. So we're always creating those prompting systems in order to support the dogs to be it to fluency so that there's less frustration for the dogs um, as we transition to other handlers. So we have a training system that incorporates that final picture of that transition to the handler in mind. And then you're going to want the um, clean cues. Quite frankly, that's what it is, is we're going to work really hard on, you know, the word is proofing, but it's probably good generalization, right? So that Mm -hmm. I can be, so if I want my dog to sit on my left, it's called heel position. So if I Mm -hmm. want my dog to sit in heel position, like I'm getting ready for an AKC competition, or I've got a dog returning to heel position to drop off a bird or something, I'm not sure. But if Mm -hmm. I'm training a dog to do something like heel position, then I'm going to make sure that I've done a great job in anticipating that perhaps that client is their way that their body functions, that they are always leaning to the right, so the opposite direction. If I cue the dog to do a heel, a lot of times if they're prompting off of my my visual picture, they're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I have to work really hard on making sure that I have generalized all of these things and that I know who the dog is going to in an ideal world. Sometimes power chairs are bigger than other power chairs. Sometimes it's a scooter. So it's long in front of me instead of tight. Sometimes they have uh, verbal differences, right? Mm -hmm. So I I might want to know how they speak in order to try to mimic that. I might want to know how they hold their hands for delivery. Um, I'm certainly going to want to know things like, can they even use their hands or are they using their mouth? to uh, retrieve the item from the dog that the dog has picked up. So there's a lot that goes into making sure that I have really strong auditory cues that are extremely well generalized to different visual pictures and that I have a dog who's able to discriminate those cues really well. So to me, that is a really good foundation and then things go sideways from there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, we'll get into that. But first thing, I just want to say, I I am just sitting here and like, I I thought I knew how hard it was to train service dogs for other people, and I am just in awe of what you are saying that you do on a daily basis. That's pretty incredible training to really, I mean, and people can't see, but, you know, I I knew exactly what you meant when you kind of held up your hands with the fingers really curled in. So you had like the pads of the tips of your fingers against the inside, like almost against the fleshy bit of your palm. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and yep. you know, how that how that hand configuration would really affect treat delivery or whether or not you can accept a retrieve. And, you know, these are, I think those are really salient and clear examples that we would see versions of. We see versions of as far as differences in handler skill and um, receptiveness in our field, but you have to deal with just this much more kind of diverse or kind of concrete, easily identifiable versions of it. And it's just really impressive. So hats off to you. Sorry, I, I, I'm a hand talker. So here I am yeah, on a podcast that's okay. giving, visual, giving visual prompts. So thank you for clarifying. I think you did a good job explaining it anyway, though. Like I was just thinking as you, you were holding your hands in a, that way, I was like, oh yeah, one of, one of my friends, um, younger brothers in high school had a, I, I can't re- I think it was cerebral palsy. Um, I can't quite remember now. Um, and I just remember being like, oh yeah, that is exactly kind of the position that his hands were generally more or less stuck in. Um, so, okay. So <laughs> you started saying, okay, and then this is where stuff can start falling apart. So we've, we've got the person selected. We've got the dog. We've done a bunch of basic training on the dog. Now we kind of know and then it sounds like at some point you've kind of identified this dog is going to this person. So then you start kind of working on making sure that the dog's training is more specific to that person. Mm-hmm. Is there anything Absolutely. in that phase we really need to bring up or do we want to jump to how we actually then, how do you perform the handoff? Like, do they come to your facility for a month? Do you go to them with the dog for a month? Is it just three days? Like how on earth does that happen? So in some ways, the uh, the global pandemic that we it's over, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. um, so some ways uh, it, it has been a bit of a blessing in disguise because it's forced us to be a little bit more innovative in how we deliver our team trainings. We are very blessed that we were able to stay open when a lot of schools weren't able to stay open. And so that was taking advantage of digital technologies such as Zoom to be able to do our theoretical portion. So we have a minimum standard of education that we have to provide all clients and even clients who are having multiple dogs. So that's a repeat client. Uh, those mm-hmm. They're still going through our full team training, which involves um probably i mean it classroom time you're probably looking at about 15 hours minimum of classroom time for theory so everything okay. from wellness uh canine wellness to grooming to public etiquette cue structure you know canine learning theory all sorts of stuff so we cover everything from the basics it's like here's your new dog (laughs) this Mm -hmm. is things you need to know about dogs in general so we make no assumptions about what people know so we do an Mm -hmm. online portion to our training and then we do uh in-person team training and this is where we do the handoff for the dogs Um, okay when we're doing that handoff that's usually in person and historically it has been a multi-person class so we'll have three four five clients who will basically be getting their new service dog and who will be going through the practical portion of that, which looks like this is what heel looks like sitting on my left. This is what a stand looks like kicking back. This is what, right? This is what, this is our Uh retrieve sequence. So this is how we get the dog to retrieve. This is how we set dogs up in order to be able to visually locate door buttons or light switches, um, all sorts of stuff. 
So we, this is how you groom your dog. This is how we brush the teeth. So there's a lot that we cover and usually that's a minimum of a five day course. So that might okay. be four days with, uh, their dog's trainer, uh, who's mm-hmm. working with those clients to problem solve and, uh, support the client in the transition. Um, and then maybe a day in their home, setting up their home and working through their, um, the needs that they'll have to right. deal with in the house. Right. So we're really looking to tailor everything from, okay, we're in a training center. Okay. We're in a mall. This is a restaurant. This is, it's quite jam packed. And yeah. then at the end of that, we have a, yeah. can you imagine you've never owned a dog before? <laughs> <laughs> I know this is like dog boot, like, the dog on our boot camp. Um, it is. It I, I mean, it sounds very supportive. Yes, it's, it's, we but, have fun, but it is yes, a month long dog owner boot camp. And it, the thing is, it's like at the end of the day, Pads retains ownership of our dogs. So, oh, okay. And people are not guaranteed to go home with the dogs that they came to boot camp with or that oh. they came to meet with. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. they do have, it is in some regards. Um, high stakes because people are deeply mm-hmm. invested in getting these dogs, but they don't necessarily always leave with the dog. Sometimes that's a team problem, right? It's a compatibility issue. Sometimes that's a training problem. Perhaps there's some holes in our training that we need to go back to to fix before we mm-hmm. can continue. And sometimes it's um, like it's an X factor. So I've had dogs who do team training who are really, really good dogs, who are nice, solid dogs, but they're very handler-oriented, and they're very – they our dogs tend to be less independent for our mobility dogs. They're not guide dogs. Mm-hmm. They're not doing it on their own. They're kind of doing it with the support of the relationship with the person. So they look at me. They've spent eight months hanging out with – the, I call myself the ice cream lady. <laughs> I uh-huh. am the ice cream truck and I'm the ice cream at the same time because there's a <laughs> lot of reinforcement and reinforcement history all wrapped up in this package. And then I give them to somebody who's absolutely not me, but they have to work for that person while I'm standing there telling that person what to do. Mm-hmm. And so you can see there can be these, these moments of absolute confusion where the dog, I had once where a client said to tell the dog to heal. So sit on its left. And so the client goes heal and the dog goes, and I'm standing next to them and the dog comes around and sits on my left. Oh no. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> oh, I don't like, and it's so frustrating for these clients, but a lot of that comes like, I don't stress out about that stuff because mm-hmm. that's relationship, right? Like right. That is, once you're gone, that, is, that should that, go away. Once I'm it, the most difficult part of managing a service dog is doing it in front of the person who has the better part of a year of reinforcement history in reinforcing that mm-hmm. dog. So we can be strategic where we might do things like new cue, old cue, 
where the client will say heel and then I'll say heel. We might do things depending on their mobility or their function. We might do things like they cue the dog, I click, I give the I give the handler a reinforcer to deliver to the dog. Um, we might even consider having the dog stay with the client prior to starting team training with no necessarily um, like formal training on board but we have all of just some, bonding you know, we time. set up just some bonding time depends on the dog. It really does. Each of them are individuals. And so we yeah. have to respond to their individual needs and then be thoughtful about how to support the client. Right. So that's where those then what's come in. Right. So mm-hmm. if the dog does it incorrectly, perfect. This is great. This is a learning opportunity. Let's help the dog be correct. So that might, we might mm-hmm. ask them to reset do a couple of behaviors that are easy and cheap, build some momentum, change the training environment so that we're setting the dog up for success and then recueing the dog. And sometimes that looks like me like hiding. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to leave the room, but like peek out from you, like using a mirror around a corner <laughs> mm-hmm. or change where my setup is because I'm a giant reinforcement magnet around the dog sometimes. So mm-hmm. we're really thinking about being thoughtful in our process and then the client goes home with the dog and things usually get better yeah because oh <laughs> team training is hard but we're doing uh running online continue i call them continuing education courses so by uh bi-weekly we do a one to two hour continuing education course that hits the things that we absolutely couldn't have time to cover like biological fulfillment um husbandry and cooperative care mm-hmm. we might be hitting things like hey remember this is what canine learning theory and cue structures look like right this yeah. is right hey, so you there's this all on day one and you're, we're you were certainly it. overwhelmed yeah absolutely because there is no way that most people are either able to retain it or retrieve the the knowledge that they've retained effectively in that type of environment. So we expect a minimum of 12 weeks support post-graduation yeah. uh, with the dog so that you're at least touching base with a trainer every other week and then sometimes doing directed training interventions to help problem solve with the clients. But because we use a lot of props, in our training because we use because we because we know how our dogs are trained we have a really easy way to help progress that behavior because we have a progression in how it was trained right so Mm -hmm. if i was a detection dog and say we have issues with final source indication i'm not sure Mm -hmm. how your dogs indicate source so we have an issue in source indication well i know where my foundation is in source indication and if you're struggling to get the dog to alert on um on an odor that is a trained odor then okay well did you start that alert with a conch let's just go back Mm -hmm. to learning how to alert on Mm -hmm. a conch right so that i can have an appropriate sit you know sit and indicate or hover indicate on the thing that we started why do i need to start with final odor or final indication right. on mm-hmm. trained odor when i could be training that and why started uh, in the context a of a big of a 20 minute sourcing you know odor puzzle yeah. um that's yes. I, that's like the number one thing in our patreon coaching calls when people are dealing with alert problems i'm like okay we're gonna take this back 
to your living room you know we're mm-hmm. we're not going to try to install this into a big search until we really like what we're seeing elsewhere in these easier cleaner situations no, Absolutely. great example um yeah. i'm sitting here in a so okay so you've got they've got the kind of the onboarding team training section and then they have at least 12 weeks of kind of continuing education that's weekly online one to two hours that sounds incredible um and then you said that there was kind of that yearly recheck how does that um is that kind of say someone's three years out of getting an assistance dog from you is that kind of the main retouch that you have or do they what other kind of continuing support do they have um from from you guys uh yeah so i feel like it's it's almost an overwhelming amount of support sometimes (laughs) (laughs) and it's as much or as little as the client needs or wants um so so it's not like we're hovering but we want to be Mm -hmm. available so each dog is supported by the person who trained that dog for at least the first year of the dog's working career. Okay. So if I'm about to place a, little, a couple of dogs um, with service dog clients, so they will be in my heart for a minimum of a year. They'll be in my heart forever, but they'll mm-hmm. be uh, they'll be in, in under my umbrella of support. So a client will contact me directly if they have any problems, um, and then we support them all the way up until that first year milestone after they've passed their recertification for public access test. So mm-hmm. Assistance Dogs International requires that we ensure it's like. Uh, sorry, I'll finish my thought, requires that we ensure that the dogs are safe and reliable in public. So that looks like every year we have our uh, client care coordinator, our client care person, uh, touch base with the person and run that person through uh, a standardized public access test. And then that also gives us a touch point to make sure that things are going well how, how much does the dog weigh? Uh, how are, how are the teeth looking? Mm-hmm. How are like, how, like we're really maintaining the, the care of the dog and that the client is also being cared for, right? If they're frustrated, if there's behavior challenges that perhaps all of a sudden show up when you mm-hmm. get someone in front of you, sometimes these things happen. So mm-hmm. incidentally, then we're, then we've got that client care person who is touching base with them a year on a yearly basis. Um, and then that goes on for the entire working career of the dog until the dog is retired. And then Mm -hmm. once the dog is retired, the client has the option to either adopt and keep the retired dog. Um, and so depending on the situation, some clients will put their dog in a retirement home because for Mm -hmm. our mobility dogs, they don't, it would be like going out on your conservation field where you do your studies and taking them with you every day, but asking them not to work because they live in our house and they do a lot of tasking inside of the house. So for them, there is no such thing as retirement. They just keep working because they want to make you happy Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they love their jobs. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, they don't know how to retire properly. (laughs) No, of course. So sometimes they do get rehomed for retirement. So definitely. And you know, there, there's actually, there's a story that I just, I feel like I need to tell here of, um, so Wicket was a, um, she was a conservation detection dog with Amy Hurt from Working Dogs for Conservation, who she was an incredible dog. I got to meet her at the very end of her life. 
and uh, she knew like 32 odors. She's one of those dogs where like half of the papers that you read that come out of Working Dogs for Conservation, there's a good chance Wicket was on them. Just this amazing dog. Um, when she was 15, I think she was out on like a little a little walk around the cabin um, with Amy and the other, you know, the other current working dogs. And Wicked at this point is blind and deaf. <laughs> and, you know, really this was just a couple months before she went. And they came across a pile of bear scat and gosh darn it, this dog sat <laughs> and told Amy about the bear scat. Um, hey, Amy, it's right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I wasn't there for this or anything, but it's just, yeah, you, you don't take it out of the dogs. I, I know so no. my older working dog is he's eight and a half. He'll be nine at the end of November. He'll actually probably be nine by around the time this episode is live. Um, it, and yeah, moving him towards retirement is going to be really, really hard because he is going to want to continue working forever. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, luckily for me, I can just choose to not let him out of the truck uh, when we get to a field site. And right. if, not if I take him on a walk house. and he so happens to indicate on something, that's great. You know, it, like with, with Wicked, I think Amy... I'm, probably had food or toys or something on her and was able to, <laughs> to make that you into a party. Great. Yeah, what a good girl. Um, <laughs> we all stepped in that bear poop. We knew it was there, but thank you. <laughs> um, now I'm, now I'm, uh, now I'm making up stuff, but yeah, um, it's... but yeah, but I can imagine with a dog in your home, that's, that's not a, a possibility. You can't actually separate the dog from the work. So I'm glad you brought that up. I hadn't thought of yeah, that. it's a, it's quite, and it's a, it's a lifelong process for for these clients and for dogs. And uh, I know many, many clients who retire their dog, but actually don't get a successor dog until the first one has, you know, crossed Rainbow Bridge, because mm -hmm. the idea of of separating themselves from their beloved dog is like that's not going to happen. They're here till yeah. till they're not. So it's, yeah. it's really, but I mean, also if that dog is an important aspect of your independence, then you have to make a life choice that's best for you and mm -hmm. for the dog. So totally. there's lots yeah. of options. I don't think there's any one. judgment either way. <laughs> yeah, um. this is absolutely. But it's, it, I can just imagine trying to, to make that decision and you know, there's no, there's no good way to, it's the best, the hardest mm -hmm. decisions are sometimes the right ones. Right. So, yeah. It's definitely a tricky well, thing for them. Well, it's a little different. So, I can imagine in a lot of cases, like he, uh, us within the, the conservation working dog world, many of us just have a lot of dogs. Part of the reason <laughs> I got Niffler when I got him, my younger dog, um, and I only have two, which is, I think, a very, very reasonable number of dogs. Um, <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, thank you. We'll see how many I end up with um, in the long run. But part of the reason I got Niffler when I did was Barley was seven. And I was thinking, okay, this way, by the time, even if Barley has to retire younger than I expect, because I expect him to likely be able to work until he's 10, 11, 12, um, kind of depending on the project, obviously. Um, but that way I can more or less guarantee I've got a dog kind of ready um, yes. and I won't feel like I'm replacing him. I'm not having to try to decide at what point I want to you know, make those decisions. I won't feel the need to push Barley to keep working for longer than necessary because I kind of have that successor ready. And I'm also getting that successor before that decision becomes as emotionally fraught. And that is, that is not necessarily a luxury that I can imagine 
assistance dogs folks have because you don't necessarily i mean you i i don't know can you have could could you have two at the same time like you couldn't really you have a you, could it you depends you absolutely okay. we wouldn't we wouldn't say uh, it depends it depends it depends on the client it depends on the dog it depends on the situation um right some dogs will happily be like that's all yours but some dogs would not so it depends on the types of tasking and work that they're doing sure we but mo in general if one person is going to have two dogs it'll be a retired dog and then a uh and then a current working dog yeah the timing um, would have if they're going to have two of the past dogs but that is not necessarily going to be great for every team in every scenario sure. so yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of individual thought process about what's the most effective thing for them but uh i don't in general most of the people i know who are having mobility service dogs do not ha have two in the house they would have they would basically either rehome the uh, original like the older dog to a retirement home a lot of times the mm -hmm. friends or family um and then they'll have time and space to bond with the new dog because it's an incredible bond that they have and in order yeah. to create space for a new dog uh right so you've been very proactive and thoughtful about how you're going to incorporate that new dog into your life so that there's not that sense of tragedy because mm -hmm. uh, as a person who raised puppies, I've certainly done that where you go, you're nice, but you're just not Holly. That was the name of my first mm -hmm, dog. Mm -hmm. It's like, and it, because the, the loss is very tragic feeling. So to have yeah. a little bit of overlap was eventually the right strategy for me in my puppy raising career. Um, and, but some people, some people are able to process things differently than others. So it's not necessarily um, as complicated as my yeah. personal emotions. Made yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, no, Niffler, poor Niffler. I'm actually, I'm preparing a whole other episode about, <laughs> uh, he's an amazing dog and he still, he has really gotten the short end of the stick with having to compare to Barley and live in Barley's shadow. And <sighs> there's nothing wrong with him there there really isn't but um and i can imagine it would be that much worse if i was getting him after barley um it's been mm, really interesting mm -hmm. this season is my first time working both of them um and we're out on the wind farm and i'll work one dog and then work the next dog from turbine to turbine and it's really walloping me over the head every single day that Niffler is just as good as barley <laughs> um and i think if i didn't literally have that in front of me i don't Niffler probably wouldn't be getting a fair shake at how incredible he is for a couple of years. Um, it's amazing what that relationship does to color, to kind of color our lens about yeah. stuff. Because the fir that first dog, I still get misty-eyed when I talk about my first assistance dogs mm -hmm. that I raised. Ask all my friends, anyone I know, as soon as I talk about Har Holly, I start crying. Because oh, no. it's just, yeah. there was, oh, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. But it's, it's amazing. And so there is a lot of emotion that goes with loss. Cause even though like Holly just moved on to a career as a breeding dog, um, there was a lot of loss to process that went with that. Mm -hmm. That was really for me as a young adult, my first pet that I'd ever lost. And so it really, 
it really is hard for a lot of people. So you have to think about it in that context of almost grief, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Because even mm -hmm. as you have Niffler and you love him, you're also preparing in a way, grieving Barley while he's still in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. Niffler and is definitely so a reminder. It is. Niffler is a reminder of Barley's age, you know, like his very mm -hmm. existence. Um, you know, like this morning we went for an hour long run and Niffler is full on galloping, probably 27 miles an hour. I've clocked him <laughs> a couple times in the past and, you know, doing 22 year old month old boy stuff. Um, <laughs> and Barley, you know, he's trotting along right next to me, you know, <laughs> and it is, it is lovely. Like the relationship and the understanding that Barley and I have is, and now I'm going to cry, um, is, <laughs> is something I wouldn't trade for the world, but it also like having both dogs at the same time, is a very, I don't think I would necessarily notice that Barley was just running next to me if I didn't have Niffler running a quarter mile ahead, running back to check in on us, sprinting out. You know, like it's a very mm -hmm. stark reminder of the, even though Barley can still do everything physically that he wants, he has not, like, he hasn't lost any capability, but he has slowed down. Yes. So, yes. whew, I, I don't want to end on this note. No, <laughs> um, sorry, sorry. No, it's it's okay. like, oh, how, how do we end on this? Like talking yeah, about I know I keep like looking over dogs, at Barley, our tragedy. Like... No, so okay. I love so... you so much. Don't leave me. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, no, we've had a we've had a lot of long talks. He's shook on the idea. He's making it to sixteen. So I have seven more years with him. Yeah, I had. Uh... You, the, the viewers can't see it, but that's my uh -huh. Australian shepherd that oh. uh, is no longer with us. And she was darn near 16. They just, mm -hmm. they are, they are fit. <laughs> they do yes. not. Yeah. <laughs> they bless their hearts. They, they are just, they are like toy poodles. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like they just, yeah. I mean, they, it's they part have of, this incredible it's part of what I like about the breed, you know, it's, <laughs> Um, so that okay. they, they're vital for a long time. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah. I love when I watch like the agility world championships and there's a bunch of dogs on the podium that are 10. Yes. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, yeah, this is, Love I like goals. seeing this in a breed. You're yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Barley, like, look okay. at yourself. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Marley. So got a, you still got a year and a half before you, before you've aged out of the agility world championships. We got to get training. <laughs> Uh, he can't do 12 wave poles still. Um, yeah, that's okay. We've got other skills. Um, so, okay, let's, uh, we're going a little bit long. What are kind of some of the, any common hiccups or particular anecdotes you want to share about kind of that handoff process and kind of identifying areas that need work kind of anywhere in between the matchmaking and like the long-term success of a team? I would love to hear if you've got any any anecdotes or kind of, yeah, common hiccups that come up? In the handoff process. Kind um, of anywhere in that team success framework. I mean, I think, okay, so I don't want to be tragic. Um, in an ideal world, we are making sure that we are placing dogs who are going to have a lifetime of success with their partner. Yeah. That doesn't always happen, quite frankly. Yeah. Like sometimes uh -huh. we have dogs who are, you know, for 
there's nothing that they're doing that doesn't say that they won't be a long-term successful service dog until they get to a client and then the wheels fall off the wagon, which is very humbling for us and very hard on the client. Um, So our goal is to hopefully find out, make sure that those things don't happen and then to put them with people who are really good mechanics (laughs) so that the wheels stay (laughs) on. They're like, Oh, do we need, Um, and, but (laughs) if you're looking for hiccups, like, those tend to, those just generally I find tend to come in the flavor of orienting towards the towards their previous reinforcement history. Like I said, I'm kind of like the ice cream man. And one of the things that I find the most interesting in the process of handing off is how all in the dogs are. That is, I think, a a good way to kind of frame this is like, because we can think about, you know, is it ethical to rehome my dog? And I have rehomed dozens and dozens and dozens of dogs. Like I have rehomed many dogs and seen friends do the same thing and seen my partner do the same thing. And so... I think for me, one of the most powerful experiences that I've ever had in rehoming a dog was actually with a good friend who, during our graduation, so we do a yearly celebration of all of the dogs and teams that have graduated and all of the community of village of people who have raised and trained this dog because it is absolutely a community project. And so it was maybe my second year actually here's the funny story it is the dog so after i turned in my first puppy i ever raised i brought home a new dog who was six months old for me to raise and you can imagine my tragic state of mourning (laughs) for my first (laughs) dog and her name was ella and it was like ella you're really nice but you're just not holly to the point where Uh, my amazing mentor and good friend, our puppy program manager, Heather Kid, was like, maybe you need a different dog, Miranda, because I literally thought it was a great idea to take the dog on vacation, drop it off at the campus, and then come home with a new dog. So <laughs> it was terrible. It was a terrible yeah. experience. I do not <laughs> recommend that. Like, let someone else take the dog. Like, don't take uh-huh. it on vacation with a farewell tour. And then don't think you're going to be A-OK for your next dog when it happens if you're, yeah. any, oh if you're built like me. So my good friend got roped into puppy raising this beautiful little dog that I brought back. And she ended up graduating as a hearing dog. So that was amazing. And her and I went to the dog's graduation ceremony in Burnaby. And our graduation ceremony, we call it a leash handoff. So the client goes onto stage and we're sitting next to Ella's client, Roger. And, you know, we've cried. We've met the dog back. We had a little reunion cry. We've met this person. They're so very worthy. And uh, the person goes on the stage and and they get introduced about, you know, this is who this person is. And they've been paired with hearing dog Ella. And uh, I remember we're sitting in the seats in the stadium waiting for this leash handoff where Brittany goes onto the stage to hand off the leash to the client and have a hug and a public cry. <laughs> it's a lot of crying. <laughs> yeah. And 
I remember, so Roger gets up to go on stage and the dog is looking for Roger. The dog is sitting with the person who has loved her intensely for a year and a half, like most of her life. Uh And she hasn't been with this person for maybe six months. Uh And that dog is like, where is my person? And she's kind of like dodging around Brittany to try and see where Roger went. And that was that moment where you're like, oh, they're not mine anymore. (laughs) They're their dog. And it, it was just so powerful to be able to see that like, all of the anxiety that we go through that's in our, you know, homo sapien heads and we're mourning and we're grieving and we're like, is they're going to be okay without us? And they're busy forming new relationships that are even more impactful than the one they had with you. Uh-huh. So for me, I think that's that point of like, I love it when the dogs don't love me anymore because they love me a lot because I spend a lot of time with them. And then, and when I see that they don't love me anymore, they're like, Oh, Hey Miranda, nice to see you. Like half of them will give me like a token, like, Oh, Hey, give me a little wiggle. Like cool. Cool beans. I'm going back to my real person. This is my ice cream man now. And that I think is the most powerful um, recommendation for mm-hmm. giving dogs away or like, and giving yeah. people of all different backgrounds and all different abilities, the, the opportunity and the privilege of working with and building a relationship with a dog, the way that is easy for me to do and mm-hmm. is maybe not easy for someone else to do. And to give I think to bring it back to conservation, to give someone the opportunity to do what you do, Kayla, if Uh tomorrow you couldn't keep Niffler, he would like, he would still do what fills his heart. And you could see him do that for fill someone else's bucket and have an amazing working relationship with them. And that is why we give dogs away because it is the most impactful thing I have ever done in my life. And when you have someone take you by the shoulders and look at you and say, you have changed my life. Who wouldn't like turn around and be like, can I get another puppy? Can I go through this goat rodeo? I would like to do this again again." now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm doing this again and again and again. And it's absolutely worth it. And I highly recommend if anyone's listening and they've ever thought about doing something like raising a service dog or a guide dog, do it. It's the best thing you'll ever do because it goes with you everywhere. And you're, it is a privilege to be able to give somebody um, something that they wouldn't necessarily be able to have without you. So I highly recommend it. We have a dog surplus. If you have a dog deficit, come find an ADI organization that does mm-hmm. the same thing because it's absolutely worth it. Oh, that's, so that's, yeah, that's better a, than ending on retirement. That's a great me. note to end on. No, and <laughs> yeah, it's really powerful. And um, yeah, no, I think I think we should just end it there. So um, no, Miranda, nothing better to say than yes, yeah. <laughs> do it. Thank Raise you, thank Change you so much for coming on the show. Um, this was great. I think I hope people learned a lot and kind of have some stuff to think about uh, as you know regarding 
things that we can learn as far as maybe being successful with training dogs and helping conservationists and ecologists use dogs and imp you know broaden the impact of this field um and you know maybe that's not something that's going to happen in a large scale way anytime soon but i think i think you've given us a lot to th think about and if and when that is a direction that this field starts going to, I hope that we all have the wisdom and humility to remember to look at other fields that also train highly, uh, you know, highly specific, high impact dogs for long term, important, hard work, um, because we don't have to reinvent the wheel with this. Um, we can learn from you guys. And, you know, obviously the specifics of what we're training are different, but we can learn how you select and pair dogs and how you select the handlers and how you make sure that they succeed in the long run. I think we can learn a lot from you. And I think we already did today. So again, thank you for coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me and letting the conversation just yeah, meander. Go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And for everyone at oh, home, um, you can find um, show notes and a transcript of this episode over at canineconservationist.org. You can buy t-shirts and tote bags and mugs and stickers and all that great stuff. Um, also on our website, you can join Patreon if you're interested in getting coaching calls with us. Um, all of that, again, is over at canineconservationist.org. Miranda, where can people find you online or learn more about assistance dogs if they're so inclined? Uh Please, I'm always going to direct people to our amazing website. It's a great resource. It's just PADS, P-A-D-S dot C-A, so Pacific Assistance Dog Society. Um, you're also able to find them at PADS Dogs on Instagram. If you like geeking out about dog training or just cute pictures of labs and goldens, then I have a personal blog on Instagram. It's a little bit of a long name. <laughs> it's PADS. Calgary advanced dogs. Um, if you check out, if you just put in pads, Calgary, the city I live in, C-A-L-G-A-R-Y, it should pop back up. Okay, excellent. <laughs> and we always have fun training videos on there. So we're always happy to engage with and, uh, well, mostly me, I'm, it's me. I'm happy to engage <laughs> with and answer any questions people have about what we do with our dogs and the type of training we do. And, um, maybe you two get to follow some of the journeys of some of the dogs that we train so that they too can go to their clients. And uh, it's about $35,000 to get one of these dogs to clients. So we're wow. sponsored yeah. all through individual and corporate donations. We don't get any government funding. So we're always plugging away for money in order to give dogs to people mm -hmm. who yeah. need them. <laughs> so yeah. I feel like I would yeah. be remiss if I didn't, uh, my executive nope. director would be sad if I didn't say, please fund A little bit us. of a fundraising pitch. <laughs> yeah. One of Always. the things. It's absolutely worth it though. <laughs> well, uh, the, we, we may or may not leave this in, but um, one of the things that God, I wish, I, I hope that maybe one day we get to the point with the podcast that we could do is um, like, there's a podcast called Ologies. That's one of my absolute favorite podcasts. And they just interview experts in all sorts of different ologies, you know, so biology, psychology, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's hundreds of episodes. It's amazing. Um, they get very detailed. But one right of the now. things they do is every episode, their um, podcast sponsors, instead of going to support the podcast, they get donated to um, a charity of the guests choosing. <laughs> and that's something that we don't yet have enough revenue 
to do, but um, we have like almost every single one of our guests is involved in the nonprofit world in a way that I would love to be able to uh, send them some money instead. So um, in lieu of that, maybe go donate five bucks to, to PADS. Um, and with that, we'll, uh, we'll end the episode. <laughs>